grace in Jesus' name, amen. All right, from your handout, you'll see across the top there one summary statement, Nahum masterfully poetic comfort about the end of evil. It is masterfully poetic comfort about the end of evil. We could say that the main point is that God's people are comforted when he takes vengeance on his adversaries. Wait, what, comforted? Yes, comforted. That's kind of the whole point of us studying Nahum. This is a gory, violent book. It's gloom, it's darkness, it's judgment. But remember, this also fits our pattern that we've seen, and we will see in all of the 12 minor prophets, judgment unto restoration. So we can always find, we can always look for the restoration. You'll see that in my summary statement there. Remember Jonah, the book we studied a few weeks ago? He preached in this same city of Nineveh. And remember what happened? The city repented instantly, and the city was spared. It was just about incredible missionary success. The whole city turned to God. Now we're 100 years later. If you see in my summary, 100 years later, along comes Nahum, our seventh, seventh out of 12 minor prophets, in what we're calling our God theater. That's just the presentation of God, of who he is through these little stories, these little scenes, right? Assyria, the nation, with a capital city of Nineveh, had become the most cruel and ruthless nation in the ancient world. I might have to rate today's class PG-13 for some of the gore and things that I will say here. I'm actually glad there's no children here today. Yes, ruthless, cruel nation. One of the most, probably the most ruthless, cruel nation in the ancient world. So we find our theme, judgment unto restoration, when God's justice compels him to bring down the oppressive nation Assyria for the sake of the innocent, not only his own people, but other nations that they had been pummeling also. So Nahum 1 verse 7 The Lord is good, stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But notice where, as we study, verse 7, Nahum 1.7 will be in context. We'll get there, and it's a very important verse, but forget about it for now until we set the scene in the context. You could also see chapter 1, verse 15, where the Lord through Nahum brings good news. Brings good news. Who does that sound like? Tidings of good news? Anyway, um, Isaiah, but we'll study that too. Um, so then on the, the man Nahum. Now before I get to the man Nahum, I just wanted to have this introductory moment as to this class. My listeners, those of you who've gotten up early and come over here today on a wet day, um, please put your seatbelt on. Uh, hold on today. Um, there's actual gold here. Um, but studying the book of Nahum, I'm just going to say this, it's not easy. Um, we don't need a map today, so you can flip over, you'll see just white on the back of your page, because we don't need a map today. Instead, what we need today is a history lesson. And all Americans say, we don't like studying history, right? If you go with me on this journey, you'll find gold, right? Nahum is writing at a certain time that we have to understand, or the whole book just doesn't make sense. You have to understand something of the ancient, foreign, unknown, difficult time. So if you put the effort in to listen and track with me, I've put as much effort as I can into putting it on the paper for you and say it uh, verbally this way, 
Um, if you meet me in that effort, I think we'll get somewhere nice. Imagine we're going on a, a ride to a gold mine. In order to get to the gold mine, you have to get in the truck, and you have to go on a very bumpy ride, okay? There's no other way to get to the gold mine than in this truck on this bumpy ride. So don't get out of the truck when it starts to get bumpy and dusty. Don't go to sleep on me when I talk about history for the next 10 minutes, okay? <laughs> um, stay with me. Don't tune out. Put the effort in. We'll find it was worth the effort. So listen with all your effort. Find gold. All right. So now the next section, the man Nahum and the times in which he was living and writing. His name Nahum means comfort and compassion. So I want you to remember that. We're not going to talk about comfort and compassion for a little while. <laughs> We've got a lot of history to go through, a lot of gore to go through, a lot of judgment to go through. But remember, we're coming back around to comfort and compassion. Okay? There's a stern message here to Assyria, and especially the capital city of Nineveh. Secondly, the man Nahum's background, he came from a town called Elkosh. Thus, we already covered he was an Elkoshite. You see that in chapter 1, verse 1. If you're open to your uh, book of, of Nahum, Maybe voted the top 10 hardest books to find in the Bible, um, Nahum, so if you can find it. Uh, his times in which he lived, the 7th century BC, and the focus is on God's judgment on Assyria. So here goes a little history lesson of, of Assyria. Assyria, as we mentioned, was 100 years prior, Jonah had a, a prophecy to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And now we're 100 years later, after Jonah, and the, Assyria has continued to strengthen in size in those last hundred years. And I've listed on your handout the names of these kings. Even the names of the kings are crazy foreign and distant to us. You ever meet somebody named Tiglath-Pileser? Anybody? You have one in your third grade class? Anyone have a Shalmaneser or a Sargon? Sennacherib might sound a little more familiar to you because it's in 2 Kings and it's in um, Israel, his relationship to our king Hezekiah. Esar Hayden probably is unfamiliar. Ashurbanipal you might have studied if you studied any ancient history of you know, Middle Eastern um, history, uh, and Egyptian history. And then um, I just wanted to point out to you that Ashurbanipal captured Thebes, Egypt. So that'll come up in our study in chapter 3, verse 8. And then chapter 1, verse 12, we'll see how God says Assyria was at full strength and many. That means many people, many soldiers. So when God is taking down the city of, of Nineveh, it's at its height. It's at its strongest time. And so over the last hundred years, it has been strengthening. It is this massive strength of a nation, huge city as we'll uncover. Okay. So a couple things to point out as you see written on your handout. Esther Hayden... You know, far down in your list of kings there, king of Assyria, he had two sons. Son number one, Ashurbanipal, is listed there, king of Assyria, and he wanted him to be king of Assyria. And his son number two, it's hard to even say, Smas Sum Ukin, he wanted him to be the king of Babylon. Two sons, one be king of Assyria, one be king of Babylon. And I don't know how you get along with your siblings, right? But when you talk about siblings who are in power through world history, as kings of this nation, that nation, you're kind of asking for trouble. Put this nation, this brother, this nation, this brother. And it worked okay for 10 years, as I wrote on your handout. One brother was under another brother. Assyria was over Babylon, so one brother king was over another brother king. It was okay for 10 years. But after that, civil war broke out, 652 BC. And Ashurbanipal, the king over Assyria, son number one, he won that battle. 
But it came at a very heavy cost, and after that battle, Assyria started to decline. Then next on your handout, you see chapter 3, verse 7. It'll reference Assyria's capital city of Nineveh. Eventually, what happens is Babylon, together with soldiers from other countries, banded together and revolted against Assyria and Nineveh. And so they um, come out from under Assyria's control, win independency by destroying Assyria's capital city of Nineveh with help from, for example, the, Med- the Medes. Remember the Medes and the Persians? So those were the other kingdoms that were in the area. They banded together to take down Nineveh in 612 BC. And the last bullet point on your history part there on your handout is Nahum likely prophesied in the years, some of you like to put the years down, so it's between 652 BC, that civil war I was talking about between two brothers, king of Assyria and king of Babylon, between that year, 652 BC, and the year um, 626, which was Babylon's second revolt when they actually did pull away from Assyria's control. So somewhere in the 650s to 620s were the years that Nahum prophesied or wrote this book. All right, now let's get into the text. So if you're on your handout, you'll see on the very bottom the outline of Nahum. I'm in uh, Nahum 1.1. I'm going to work our way through the book. So Nahum 1.1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Let's take a look at three words there, oracle, book, and vision. First, the word oracle. used to be translated, and Bill will know this as a King James uh, version right in front of him, I assume, the word burden, right, Bill? Uh, the bur- a burden concerning Nineveh. It, it's, a, it's a word that refers to a, a woe, a, um, a heavy message of bad news. You could say woe to, we don't really speak that way. Um, warning, heads up, this means war might be a way a reporter would say it. It appears to be the ancient word for what we now might call a war message, a war or a declaration of war. It's a certain specific type of writing in in which the message is delivered as a warning against a foreign nation, so oracle. Second word we're going to study in verse 1 is the word book. Now you say, well, that's a pretty obvious book, obvious word, but if you're tracking with me through the Minor Prophets, there's something different to notice here. The word book tells us that we're about to study something different from the other minor prophets. How so? Well, remember how most of the minor prophets were preachers. And so when we get their books here, it was their sermons turned into the prophetic book, right? Remember that pattern? But here, it seems that Nahum did not set out to preach sermons to the city of Nineveh, but instead he sat down to write a book about the fall of the city of Nineveh. So it's a book first, not necessarily a set of messages verbally delivered. So what's the significance of that? Well, as we all know, spoken language and written language have different strengths, right? For example, there's some things that appeal to our eyes when we see the words. And you take yourself back to your elementary classes, your junior high classes when they're teaching you poetry, and you're seeing the poetry looks different on the page than prose writing looks on the page, and things stand out to you, right? They'll ask you to take out your red crayon and circle the words that all appear like this, and you start to see patterns on the page that you can't necessarily detect with your ears when people read it to you. So, for example, Nahum chapter 1 contains an acrostic. An acrostic is one of those alphabet poems in the Old Testament which uses each successive Hebrew alphabet letter to begin the next successive line of a poem. But that sort of feature of language is more striking when you look at it in print 
than if you hear it spoken or read out loud. And furthermore, what's even more striking if you were to look at the book of Nahum as an early reader, like one of his original audience who received it, and in print, in Hebrew, what you would miss completely if you heard chapter 1 read aloud, even in Hebrew back in the day, is that this acrostic is partial. It's incomplete. So chapter 1 has lines that begin with each successive letter to the alphabet, but it doesn't finish the Hebrew alphabet. It just stops. Imagine a something across the page, you get A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, and it stops, like, what happened? Did they go to the bathroom? Like, why, why is there not the rest of this? Did somebody kill them? What's happening with the rest of this? So it, it gets cut off, and it's meant to be that way. There's some value to that. So it's an impact to the readers. In addition to the facts that we've covered so far, the fact that Nahum originated as a book and not as a verbal message, helps to explain why the book is so very well-structured. Obviously, you can't know that without being an expert in Hebrew. I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but this is the presentation that's obvious how well-structured it is. It's different from the other minor prophets, which strikes us as a collection of sermons. For example, remember when we were studying Micah, that there were a lot of metaphors right after each other, and I almost said, it's a slideshow, here's a screen, here's another slide, next slide, next slide. It goes, goes really fast that way. Um, n- not done with pictures, obviously, but with word pictures. Um, so that's a difference here. There's a presentation that's done in written form that would not be caught if it were re- only read or spoken. So that tells us that we think it's originally a book. Third word that we're going to study in verse 1 is the word vision. It's not just a word picture, but an entire scene being described in words, as we will see. The whole book of Nahum is not some giant big scene. There are several scenes. There are two passages especially that contain two big scenes, big visions of Nahum. So if you look on your handout, you'll get a clue to this with the word vision twice in that section where it says outline. Chapter 2, 3 to 10, see that? Nineveh, future woe, vision of capture and plunder. And the second one is chapter 3, 1 to 3, Nineveh, second future woe, vision of blood and bodies. So we'll study those as we go through. And since there are only three chapters and there's two large vision scenes, it's fair for chapter 1, 1 to say that this is the book of the vision of Nahum. All right, enough intro. Let's get started. So chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, is what we're calling the victory hymn, that God the warrior judges evil and saves his people. Now, first, a little more history here before we actually get into the the text. You can read ahead and look at verse 2, but you might might be helped to understand why God is so upset, so wrathful, so angry, so vengeful in chapter 1, verse 2. Our first verse of the actual content of the prophecy, God is vengeful. Don't you think you need to know why? So a little bit on that. There's something disturbing about the fall of a very large city. Think about how many movies have been made about the danger, the beast, or the monster that takes over New York City, right? It's because New York City is the biggest city we can think of, or when they were making these movies, it was the biggest city in the world. And so this monster is now threatening the largest piece of civilization for humanity, right? It's the the big danger and creates entertaining movies, right? It's disturbing, which is what sells movies. Think about that concept 
beyond entertainment, just how real that is. If we heard that three of the largest cities in the world were just destroyed, it would impact everything about our lives, right? So that's the power of what we're talking about here is the fall of a city. So Nahum is about the downfall of a major city. Uh, you probably not really heard of Nineveh very much other than the book of Jonah, right? And you weren't even sure it was in Nahum until today. Fine. But it's a very big city, and because it's so distant in the past, it's not familiar to us. So my job is to help you to realize just how big of a deal this is. Um, Nineveh was the New York, New York of the ancient world. It's that big. So I'm going to spend a few minutes trying to help you understand the history so you understand why God is reacting the way he is. The destruction of Nineveh, the city, was probably the biggest downfall of a single city in the history of the world. How are you supposed to know this? Appreciate this book. When this history is so unfamiliar to us, you have to be willing to learn a little bit about the ancient country of Assyria and its capital. It's actually mentioned in the book of Genesis, chapter 10, verse 11, where we're told that a mighty hunter went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So it was built initially by him, of course, expanded years later. And some other cities he built, including Babylon, which is the same name as the word Babel. Babel, Babylon, same place. So Babylon or Babel was a secular city without God, godless, right? Babylon came to represent warfare against God, remember? Tower of Babel, Babylon, warring against God. Nineveh came to represent warfare of man against man. The things that people do to one another, right? Throughout history, the just bloodshed we see. Outside the Bible, the city of Nineveh is the first mentioned in secular history books in the very ancient writing, you might have heard of this, the year 2200 BC, a work called the Code of Hammurabi. Okay? Hammurabi was the king who made famous the name of the goddess Ishtar and the temple of Ishtar and the city of Nineveh. But then, for the next few hundred years, there's very little heard about the city of Nineveh. Then, in the 800s, there are significant historical records starting again mentioning the city as this was a time when God's people, Israel, would coming into contact with the empire of Assyria and its uh, capital city, Nineveh. So on your handout, you'll have, as we already covered earlier, but now you have a reference point, Shalmaneser V, right? V, uh, Roman numeral V, right? Shalmaneser V. But a predecessor before him I want to talk about for a minute, Shalmaneser III. Shalmaneser III reigned from 858 to 824 BC. So Shalmaneser was the first that we know about who made Nineveh the base for attacks to overtake the northern kingdom of Israel. Shalmaneser III reported that he met a general named King Ahab the Israelite. Sound familiar? He had 2,000 chariots, 10,000 soldiers. In Shalmaneser III's account of this attack, his fourth attack against Israel in 824 BC, Shalmaneser III reported that he received a payment from Jehu, son of Omri. Again, that's familiar, right? One of ours. This scene is carved into the famous ancient artifact called the Black Obelisk. It's in the British Museum. That scene is carved in there. The scene of our King Jehu paying money to Shalmaneser III. In that scene... King Jehu, our king, I say our king because it's our history, God's history, people of God, right? 
He's seen on his knees before the king of Assyria, and the words below the artwork, the inscription, reads what the mighty king of Assyria received. Quote, Tribute of Jehu, son of Omri, silver, gold, a golden bowl, a golden beaker, golden goblets, pitchers of gold, lead, staves for the hand of the king, javelins I received from him. End quote. This was the first great humbling of the Jews, and it was done by an Assyrian king based out of Nineveh. Next, we have a king of Assyria who's listed on your handout, Tiglath-Pileser, that fun name. Let me know if you ever encounter somebody with that name. Um, he invaded uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, and received tribute from King Azariah in 733 BC. Then he invaded Israel, the northern kingdom, and took King Pekah off his throne there and placed Hoshea over the nation of Israel as emissary or vassal. The final blow to Israel came in 722 BC when Shalmaneser V, also on your handout, attacked Samaria. He died early in that attack, was followed by Sargon II. Um, Samaria fell to Sargon II. Sargon II recorded that in the first year of his reign, he carried away 27,290 people of Samaria, and he imposed a tax upon them, of course, as he also taxed the Assyrians. Then in 701 BC, Sennacherib invaded Judah, and that's recorded in 2 Kings 18 to 19. It's also recorded in Isaiah 36 and 37. 2 Kings 18 and 19, and Isaiah 36 and 37, when Sennacherib invaded Judah. Hang in there with me, not a whole lot more of the history, but it's so helpful to understand this first verse of God's wrath. So we have a biblical account about Sennacherib. Let's talk about Sennacherib just a little bit, and then we'll move into our text, okay? From the perspective of Sennacherib, a secular, unsaved, ancient king, from his perspective, what happened, right? He conquered Israel and the Jewish king, Hezekiah. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that? Because we have the biblical account, right? So the Bible acknowledges that there was force coming from Sennacherib, and he had an invasion. And the Bible tells us how the attacking general, King Sennacherib, stood before the walls of Jerusalem and boasted what? That the gods of Assyria are stronger than the gods of Judah. Right? The attacking general who worked for King Sennacherib demanded that Jerusalem therefore surrender. Sennacherib sent a letter to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, and I'll read um, part of that letter from 2 Kings 19.10-12. Thus shall you, shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard... What the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction? And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezev, and the people of Eden, who were in Telassar? End quote. 2 Kings 19, 10-12. This is Sennacherib sending a letter through his general to our king, King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, tell him, surrender because we're the big guys. <laughs> we conquer all nations. Ask anybody, are you sure you want to go down that way? Because just turn it all over and this can be over, right? That's what he's saying. So what did King Hezekiah do? You remember? He took the letter. He went to the temple. He laid out the letter before the Lord God and got down and prayed to God about this letter. That's what's told in Isaiah 36, 37, 2 Kings 18 and 19. 
So what happened? The prophet Isaiah sent a message to King Hezekiah that God would deliver his people from the attack of the Assyrians. 2 Kings 19.35 That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. 2 Kings 19.35 What is Sennacherib reporting in his historical records about an angel of the Lord taking out 185,000 of his troops? What does he believe about that? Who knows? He believes he won. He says he won. Right. So after the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 soldiers of Assyria, Sennacherib returned to Nineveh without having captured Jerusalem. Interesting. That was 701 B.C. But if you notice... If you look at Sennacherib on your handout, he lived after 701 B.C., didn't he? He still had great days in Nineveh for the next 20 years. He lived until 681 B.C. Remember that 100 years earlier, the prophet Jonah wrote that the wide expanse of Nineveh was described in Jonah 3.3 as exceedingly great as a city, three days' journey in breadth, which means it takes three days to walk across it. That was 100 years earlier. So now... The city is growing. Sennacherib, even though he lost 185,000 soldiers to the angel, still went on to be the king of Assyria and the king of of Nineveh, and he doubled the size of Nineveh in the following years. It became the world's largest city for that time. The inner city was surrounded by a wall eight miles in circumference. Doesn't sound big to us, but remember there's no motorized vehicles, airplanes or helicopters, right? This is all by horse or foot. The wall was a hundred feet high and so wide that three chariots could race side by side, all three, on the top of the wall. The wall had 1,200 towers and it only had 14 gates. Protected, right? That's just the inner wall. Besides the inner wall was a second outer wall, a much larger outer wall, And between the two walls were more homes, right? And so there was an inner city inside the first wall, an outer city outside the second wall, and then beyond the second wall was still more spaces for living, what we might call suburbs. And it was quite extensive beyond outside of Nineveh. So the Assyrian king Sennacherib's palace was called the palace with no rival. Can you imagine? There's no other place like it in a class by itself. It was made of cedar wood, cypress wood, alabaster, which is like today's plaster, like these white walls, gypsum, right, plaster, cement, stucco, whatever you want to call it. Outside the palace were statues, statues of lions made of bronze and bulls made of white marble. The great hall measured 40 feet by 100 feet, and Sennacherib's weapons area, it's not clear to me whether it was a weapons room or just a weapons courtyard, He kept chariots, armor, horses, weapons, and other war equipment on 46 acres. And whatever it was took took six years to build. All right? So an incredible city. You have to have some of this history to get what we're studying in the very first verse of our content. I just need you to know it's a wicked place. I don't say that lightly, and I'm going to defend it. A wicked place. With what cruelty 
with what violence it became its victorious, wealthy, powerful self, we have to dig into just a little today. Nineveh grew rich at the expense of all the nations it had attacked and from which it stole. Distant chieftains from all nations were brought to Nineveh in order to kiss the royal feet of the king of Assyria himself. Each and every one of them kiss his feet. If no other kings, if kings of other nations fought against Assyria, of course they were defeated, but they were also captured and brought to Nineveh in order to be paraded in front of the king of Assyria in chains and let everybody see them in chains. Any king who tried to trick or lie to the king of Assyria was put in dog chains and forced to live in a kennel like a dog. From around the world, kings and queens would be sending tributes as gifts to the um, king of Assyria as prices for them to stay alive. If uh, there was an enemy nation, all the nations would band together to conquer and then cut off the head of the leader and send the head back to Nineveh as a sign that they are loyal to the king of Assyria. Any who were thought to be future leaders of other nations, such as what we call crown princes, the next up and coming, they were captured and brought as hostages to Nineveh. Beautiful princesses, can you just imagine, right? We could spend the next half hour talking about what they would do. Beautiful princesses everywhere were brought to Nineveh as concubines for the mighty king of Assyria and his nobles. Any foreign leaders who were in Nineveh would consider themselves having received a rare mercy if all they had to do was carry bricks for a building project. In Nineveh, anyone who defied the authority was killed in this manner, brought into the public. I'm so sorry. They would take their skin off of them, like a hunter would do to an animal that he's killed. Anyone who was unyielding might be crushed to death and their family would be forced to do it. Nineveh had become the concentrated center of power and the concentrated center of evil, the capital of crushing tyranny and the epitome of the cruelest of torture. Before this time, uh, kings had lived in other cities, but Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, made Nineveh his capital city and the world's metropolis. It became the source of unmeasured troubles for God's people, Israel, in Judah, plus other nations around the world. The city of Nineveh had been in existence almost from the beginning of human life, as I mentioned, you know, um, book of, of Genesis. But under Sennacherib, Nineveh rose to unparalleled strength and splendor. It was the largest city in the, wall, the world. So the question is, why did it fall? Ready? I'll tell you exactly why. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. That's why. That's exactly why. You ask secular historians, and they'll say it was internal corruption, the rise of stronger Babylon around it, combining with the Medes, external factors such as disease, unpredictable causes, fires, natural disasters. Perhaps some of these things contributed to the fall. But the true answer is verse 2 here. The Lord, the avenging God, destroyed it. Now, many people don't like to think of God as the God of wrath. It's even the Christmas season. Come on now, why are you telling us all this stuff? Right, the wrath of God. The Bible teaches that that's who God is. He's God of love and mercy, and he's also God of wrath against sin. And Christians like to quote 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. And that verse is set in a context of God's coming judgment. I don't know how people miss this. The very next verse, 2 Peter 3, 10 says, quote, 
but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. End quote. The very next verse. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. Let's read the Bible in its context. That's the point at which Nahum begins his book. God's vengeance is the theme now, verses 2 through 6. Beginning in verse 2, the idea of vengeance is repeated three times. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God, there's number one. The Lord is avenging, number two, and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance, number three, on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Vengeance is, as you know, getting back at someone for the wrong that was done. Retaliation, punishment. The Assyrians in Nineveh had committed great wrongs, so now God was going to repay them for those wrongs. We need a reminder about how vengeful God is. Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. And Paul gives instructions picking up that exact quote out of that verse in Deuteronomy, showing the difference between God and ourselves in relating to evil. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 19 to 21. So there's a difference between being like God, godly, and trying to play God. It's not our role to take vengeance and play God. So the difference is seen in whether or not we take vengeance. So here in Nahum chapter 1, first theme is God's vengeance. The second theme is the guilt of Nineveh. You might ask yourself, did Nineveh deserve God's wrath? Well, first of all, we remind ourselves, who are we to say? It's God. It's his prerogative. But secondly, we're simply trying to understand, right? We're, tr- we're trying to glean what we're supposed to glean from his book, so it is helpful to understand. And God says, yes, they deserved it. Notice what he wrote in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. Now that's significant, right? God didn't strike right away. All this stuff went on and on and on. I mean, on another day, we might be asking, what's taking you so long, right? And then the other day, we say, why are you in such a hurry to judge? Like, we always want to question God and his timing and his actions. But notice what else we're told in verse 3. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So God will do justice. Justice will be served. Every wrong will be made right. He will punish the sins of Nineveh. By the way, he'll punish the sins of Jerusalem. He'll punish the sins of Moscow, the sins of Washington, D.C., and the sins of Caledonia, Wisconsin. Right? And so we understand all this. This is part of our theology. But God made this clear in the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 3, 9. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So we understand this. And Paul goes on in Romans 3 to quote, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Ecclesiastes 7.20, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, and Isaiah 59, and Psalm 36. All in that short passage in Romans 3. So it's all over the Bible that our God understands that all are understand, no one is righteous. Just like Nineveh turned away from the living and true God, so have we. Nineveh was swift to shed blood. So was Rome in Paul's day. Let me ask you this honestly. Is your society swift to shed blood? Is there a fear of God in our land? I think that's why we have so many shootings, swift to shed blood. And since God will not let the guilty go unpunished, how will we escape 
only by the coming and actions of Jesus Christ. Maybe instead of a sign at Christmas that says, wise men still seek him, okay, fine, I get what they're trying to say. Maybe the sign should stay, say this, still no one seeks him. There are no wise men or women, yet he came to save us anyway, despite our foolishness. But maybe that's too long for a little bumper sticker sign, I don't know. It's truth, but book of Romans starts out like the book of Nahum starts out. The wrath of God being revealed against wickedness, Romans 1.18. So the third theme here, we saw the vengeance of God, the guilt of Nineveh. Third theme in the book of Nahum is his judgment. Verse 3, his ways in the whirlwind of the storm, clouds are the dust of his feet. That was on our little quiz. Verse 4, God rebukes the sea and makes it dry, dries up all the rivers. Proverbial lush gardens of the ancient world would dry up. Verse 5, mountains quake before the avenging God when he comes. Look at this, I love this phrase. The earth heaves before him. Uh, Verse 4. No, sorry, verse 5. The world and all who dwell in it. Verse 6, who can stand before his rage, his indignation, his wrath poured out like fire, even rocks broken to pieces. By whom? By him, by the Lord God. There's three reasons God's destroying Nineveh. All three reasons come out of the very person of God. What sort of God is our God? That's what the God Theater presents. That's what the minor prophets present to us. Who is God? What is he like? In certain instances, put God in this instance, what, who is he like, what, is he, what would he do? Put him in an instance where you have a wicked city, the largest city in the world is this wicked. What would God do? Number one, he's a jealous God. He'll not allow other gods to receive the worship that's due to him alone. Number two, he's an avenging God. There's a push and a drive within God himself to make things right. And the third reason God's destroying Nineveh, the third character trait of God that's motivating all of this, might surprise you, it's there in verse 7. The Lord is good. Okay, wait, I think you lost me. Avenging I get. Jealous I get. He's good. He's good, so then he's going to destroy a major city? Yeah, this is the gold I was talking about. At the beginning I said, if you listen through all the history stuff, Sennacherib and this and that, you'll get to the gold. This is the gold. God is good. Which is why he has to take down wickedness. You made it to the gold mine. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. What if you lived in ancient Israel? In Assyria, knowing what you know about Assyria, it's attacking you for the fourth time. Someone hands you a copy of the book of Nahum, and they say, this is a message from God. And what do you want it to say? What do you want it to say? God will have a stern talking to them. He will let them know that this is completely unacceptable. No. (laughs) You want them destroyed. That's the only way you know you're going to be safe because there's no stopping the wicked Ninevites and Assyrians. And so we get to verse 7, you read, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. So spiritually, by faith, we take refuge in him, and because of his goodness, he protects us despite wicked people, right? So if you lived in ancient Israel, it would help you to read about the goodness of the Lord. If you're abused by the army after army sent from Nineveh, now God says he's going to rise up and rescue you, that would encourage you. Martin Luther called verse 7, Nahum 1 verse 7, an outstanding statement overflowing with consolation. Amen. This is the things we agree with Luther about, right? Remember, the word Nahum itself means comfort, consolation, the compassion of God being expressed. Luther wrote a little more about verse 7. He wrote, quote, We must relate and apply verse 7 
not merely to what trial of Judah, but also absolutely every day of our trials and adversities so that we may learn to flee for refuge in any trial at all to this sweetness of the Lord as if to a holy anchor, unless you're Nineveh. You see how there's two recipients, two audiences, two destinations? God's coming in with heat. And those who are for him, yay, protected, sweetness, goodness of God. Those who are wicked, they're going down, and it's going to be ugly. You see, that's how the Bible is set up. That's how the book of Nahum is set up. This is what's important, essential to understand. This is gold. If everyone just wants a a nice, big, marshmallow grandpa God that we can all hug. They're missing something significant that God reveals about himself in Scripture. Verse 8, but with an overflowing flood. Very next verse. The Lord is good, verse 7. Verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. When a rebel army of Persians, Medes, Arabians, Babylonians attacked the city of Nineveh, God sent unusually heavy rains, rivers flooded, that flooding undermined the wall of Nineveh, that 100-foot-high wall, and a long section of it collapsed so that the rebel army was able to infiltrate Nineveh and capture it. And the fact that God will make a complete end of Nineveh has two opposite impacts on two opposite groups. To Nineveh, it's terrifying. To Judah, it's comforting. Do you understand that about your God? It's key. It's the benefit of the book of, of Nineveh. It brings us to our next session. Section and All right, I've got to jump to my conclusion. I've uh, got to think about... I think what we've covered the most important aspect of Nineveh, of, of the book of Nahum, you have to understand its context and how God... Uh, is presenting himself. A lot of these things I've hinted at and they're just unpacked as the book goes. But let me jump to the end um, so that we see how the book goes. In, uh, in Nahum chapter 3, <clears throat> picking up with verse uh, 15d and 16, <clears throat> where God judges and mocks uh, with locusts. Verse 16, God mocks the failure of the businessmen and corporations of Nineveh. If they could multiply their wealth like locusts multiply, then all of a sudden the whole locust swarm could fly away. Their wealth would suddenly be gone. Verse 17, he mocks the government officials or those who are supposed to serve uh, the public. Just like the locusts that flew away, God says about the government officials in the time of God's attack, no one knows where they are. Right? Because the bureaucracy, bureaucrats have disappeared instead of serving the people because God is attacking Right? And this happened. Thousands of those in, in government positions in Nineveh fled. They even tried to start the government again elsewhere, but that failed. This city never rose again there or anywhere else. It was never rebuilt. Verses 18 and 19, the last two verses of, of, Nineveh, of, of Nahum. Nineveh, final scene of utter, de- utter defeat. Verse 18, the nobles were asleep, lost the greatest city in the world while they're sleeping. Verse 19, rather than people grieving and mourning for the fall of the city, people will actually clap and applaud. Uh, Verse 19, all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. Only one other book ends with a rhetorical question. It was Jonah, also about the same city of Nineveh. And I think we're designed to notice that and compare the two because they're about the same city. The question of Jonah at the end of his prophecy was about the salvation of the city of Nineveh. God asked his prophet Jonah in chapter 4, 11 of Jonah, Should I not pity Nineveh? 
that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. That's how the book ends, Jonah 4.11. With the other book that ends with a rhetorical question, here our book of Nahum, a conscious contrast is surely intended to be noticed and highlighted. A hundred years later, same city. No longer repentant. Shall we just put it that way? <laughs> Nahum 3.19, God asked the city of Nineveh, a hundred years later, this question. Upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Who did they not attack of all the nations of the world? The name Nahum means comfort or compassion. This book is a source of comfort for God's people. How? Well, we are surrounded by evil, right? Um, evil, uh, we hear about wars in uh, various parts of the world every day. We hear about shootings in our own city and around our country. Evil, right? The comfort is to know that evil does not go unnoticed by heaven. It does not go unjudged. It does not go unanswered. God may delay much longer than we prefer, but God's timing is even best. He will vindicate his name. He will vindicate his justice. He will vindicate his kingdom. And his condemnation of every wicked action is full and certain. Some of the, the last part of your handout there, New, New Testament significance of Nahum. Christ's death and resurrection are God's ultimate warfare. He comforts us by the fall of Satan and his cohorts. So God came in the book of, of Nahum, chapter 2 and chapter 3, and said to Nineveh, I am against you. Behold, I am against you, which you never want to hear from the living God. Um, and he, he says to Nineveh, I am against you. And then if you, if you fast forward and think about this from a New Testament perspective for us, we would, we would hear God saying to us, I'm against you, unless we have Jesus, right? Our sins go to him on the cross, and then the sins are cleared, so God is no longer against us. And that's exactly what Paul's writing in Colossians 2, uh, 14 and 15, I'm going to start with verse 13. We need our sins to be cleared. So here goes. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So God was against us, no longer is against us because of his salvation through Jesus Christ. So um, one more passage is mentioned there on your handout, Revelation 19, 11 to 21. I'll just end with this and make a connection to, to Christmas. Um, the vision of God, the God of wrath destroying a city makes us mindful of one more time when God comes in judgment. One more time. The greatest time of God's judgment. The last time of God's judgment, the end of the world. This is meant to make us think about hell. It's meant to make us think about the end of the world. So how's that going to go? God told us about that near the end of the Bible, Revelation 19, starting verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, which is crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. See how they're side by side? The salvation of God's people, the mightiness of Jesus the King, and the judgment, even the devastating, terrifying, gory judgment of God against. So heaven and hell, the locations that God has preserved for our future. Right? Only in Christ, by faith, do we have our sins cleansed, and God is no longer against us, but is for us in Jesus Christ. The connection to Easter is the Messiah, right? The King of kings, Lord of lords, who came finally. We anticipated all this time. We anticipate his first coming, we anticipate his second coming. So the book of Nahum, God is serious about sin, and he saved us from it. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for your blessings to us in Christ Jesus.